quick disclaimer at the top, today's Brighton Deep Dive. We did record this about a month ago, so just keep that in mind. We recorded a little bit in the aftermath of the Mark Cucurella sale and subsequent acquisition of Purvis Estupignan. So we did our best to tie up some loose knots, but just keep it in mind when you hear a few stale artifacts within this show. It's not going to take anything away from this ode, but just keep that in mind before going on Twitter and calling us out for being complete idiots. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie! Hello and welcome back to another episode of Faking Injuries. Today we're going to do our first of at least a few, hopefully many, deep dives on clubs that we love and that we would aspire to emulate once we get our hands on a lowly level Swiss club. It's a club that we talk a lot about on this podcast. I don't think we hide our love for it very well, despite it being neither of ours like primary club, but it, it's Brighton. Brighton and Hove Albion. The little minnows, they've left an indelible mark on our hearts and our soul. So what we're going to do today is just speak to why we love them, giving a bit of an introduction on their current ownership, their current coaches, other stakeholders, but then dive into their philosophy and what has enabled them to solidify a spot in the Premier League over the last few years. And we think this team has a lot more in store in the future. That's it for my opening soliloquy. Charlie, anything you want to add before we dive into this one? Yeah, very well said. I think that might have been your best intro ever. That's facetious. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was genuine. Uh, yeah, no, we, we love this club. South Shore of England. Cool city, cool ownership. And there's really only one place to start, and that's with the two key figures of this club. Tony Bloom, the owner, and Graham Potter, the gaffer. Let's start with the owner, Tony Bloom. And go into his origin story a little bit because it's pretty fascinating. He's a pretty young billionaire, only 52, made his riches off of betting. So he started this company called Star Lizard. It's essentially a firm full of traders, as they call it, who identify bets that are favorable, you know, based off their in-house model, which... So this isn't much unlike our investment thesis and portfolio that we've started to build up here, just on a bigger scale? No, very similar origin stories for both of us, you know. Clearly, success is coming in the future, but it's a, it's a cool firm because they literally develop these super extensive models on betting and soccer and identified inefficiencies in the market that existed, especially early on. I think they still exist, but early on, there was a lot more when betting was just starting to get onto the scene. And they're replacing these trades, which were essentially just five to 10 million pound bets on a game or on Asian handicap spread, which they were one of the first to like really introduce that into the European betting market. And also they invented XG. The stuff that every journalist uses now, it's all over FootMob, FBref, anywhere you want to go. People always reference XG if you're outperforming, underperforming. They invented it, placed it in their betting models before the betting companies could figure it out. So they had a clear advantage and were making tons and tons of money betting on any game they could where it was favorable. From everything I've read, the betting industry, like a lot of other ones, was really a wild, wild west before big data got involved and like the super smart people on the precipice of computer science got involved in math. You know, that intersection made a lot of nerds very wealthy. So what nerdy Tony Bloom did, as I presume a man in his early 20s was 
get his Microsoft Excel going, boot up the Python lab, and just start to put some math behind the odds. And sure enough, once these guys got in doing very detailed modeling, they just realized that there were some really obvious pricing incongruities in the market. And so what anyone has ever done that's made money embedding did is put a lot of money consistently behind trades that you know are mispriced. Right. And it might not work out every time, but in the long run, you're going to make more money than you lose because you're getting the best price, right? And that's what they would do. They love to bet the leagues with the most inefficiencies, like the most market inefficiencies in terms of odds. So like they were throwing $5 million on a Bundesliga two game. Just because like that was the the best game to bet on that given day. And they were moving the lines like crazy, right? Because if you throw five mil on one side of a bet, the entire market changes. So really fascinating company, really cool origin story. He's essentially just a betting degenerate that's also like clever, you know? Not the typical betting story you hear. Very successful, turns into a billionaire off of it. This guy likes poker. He's just a degenerate better who likes to use big data to back up his... His bets. Smart man. Yeah, you touched on the poker as well. And if you visit his Wikipedia page, as we did in our deep dive of research effort, you'll see that his nickname is The Lizard. And so that's just who he was at the poker table. Cold-blooded. Could never really get anything from him. Doesn't really look like he's a mammal. More of a cybernetic organism that managed to become a chairman. That's who Tony Bloom is. And... I also like to think, based on our last few episodes, we've talked a lot about hot dogs, a.k.a. glizzies. In an alternate Rick and Morty-style universe, he didn't start Star Lizard to bet on horses or second division Bundesliga games. He started Star Glizzard, which his only purpose was to bet on the American Coney hot dog eating contest that that one dude dominates every year. His models probably would have assured him of that result, but I think it's possibility that he would own Brighton just because of the American hot dog industry. If we want to chase some clout really quick, I bet Star Glizzard is an open Twitter handle, and we can just start adding Tony and see what he thinks. <laughs> I like that. We might need to add that to our uh, vile marketing strategies because we've been stuck on 22 followers for quite some time. It's been a little too long. Another thing we should probably mention on Tony Bloom is that, like a lot of other owners in the English football pyramid, he's a dude that started off from humble origins, was a huge football fan of his local club, and then got rich and purchased them. And so that's exactly what he did. His family, I think his uncle, had connections with Brighton, like serving on some boards. So he had very deep ties and... We like to think when we get rich, we'll get a football club. That's what Tony Bloom did. And so that's when he stepped into Brighton right around 2010. Yeah, he's the type of owner that's in the bleachers with the normal fans, you know, which is really cool because that's where he grew up going. Yeah, man of the people, Tony Bloom. Man of the people. I think that's enough on Tony Bloom, Star Lizard, the origin story of this Brighton project that's about 13 years running under him now. Let's move on to the other key figure of this operation. The man, the myth, the legend, the genius, Graham Potter, Brighton's gaffer for the last five years, four years, something like that? Something like that. He is an unbelievable manager who got to where he is now in a very unorthodox way. You know, he didn't do like the championship straight into like low league, Premier League club route. He went to Ostersons, which was like a team in Sweden in the third division 
middle of nowhere, had to relocate his whole family. You don't walk around in boots. You walk around in skis, probably. Oh, yeah. And he brought them from the third division in Sweden all the way to the first division. Really, like, built this community in this small, like, 5,000 capacity stadium. And they just, like, worshipped him. And it's a cool story because you rarely hear of managers coming from, like, that path it doesn't the it doesn't make of sense sweden. <laughs> yeah the depths of sweden that's where footballing dreams usually go to die yeah but if, if we think about like how brighton approaches players and their money ball strategy data driven they kind of did the same thing with the manager they're like let's take a gamble on this guy who performed unbelievably well in a league that no one really focuses on versus a guy that performed averagely in the championship and take a gamble you know yeah that's a really good point in putting together the narrative on Graham Potter is that he's very unconventional and he is always himself to a T. And so taking that path, which it's an interesting path to take for him, but maybe it's one of the only things he thought could be a differentiator because he was one of probably a number of other players who had middle of the road careers. He played a little bit in the Premier League for a few seasons and then over the remaining story arc of his career, just kind of fell down second, third, fourth division. So it's not like he was Wayne Rooney or Frank Lampard coming out and had access to great jobs. I think at age 35, five years removed from the end of his playing career, it was an available path and one that he thought would give him the ability to show who he is. And that's what he did, right? Instilling the playing philosophies, but also being involved so holistically with his players and the community. That's something that's also come to define him as well. Absolutely. Yeah. He took a gamble and did unbelievably well at this job. The famous result was when they beat Galatasaray in the Europa League, made a little bit of a run in there. I think it was 1-1 first leg, 2-0 second leg. There's a one of those Coach's Voice Tactics Masterclass YouTube videos. Um, I've seen a bunch of those. This is probably my favorite one. But he's still playing a similar style. He's always been inventive. His teams always score a lot of goals or at least have the potential to with their XG. We love this guy. I mean, he took the path less traveled, and now he's at Brighton, and they just finished ninth, which is the highest ever. He's an unbelievably accomplished manager already in my mind because – People don't give enough credit to like that type of job versus like winning a league. Bringing Brighton to ninth has to be as hard as just about anything you could do. And in that game versus Galatasaray, one of the other super human things that happened, which was beautiful, was despite his team traveling away and getting a result at the favorites Galatasaray, the opposing fans like gave them a standing ovation for the little Davids that they were. Firing that slingshot like a Tommy machine gun, you know? That is Graham Potter through and through, and I thought just a cool little tidbit. One other thing at the intersection of his philosophy as a human and as a coach, while at Osterund's, probably butchering the shit out of that name, he was known for encouraging the team to get involved in the community and like be in plays and shit. It was just cool because that was part of his thesis of getting players out of their comfort zone, which... At a human level, if you can get them embracing that, it's helpful on a football pitch because his teams are often super flexible and just rolling with the punches. Yeah, I think that story honestly does a good job of summarizing the type of manager he is because he is both a man manager, can do things like the theater, get players out of their comfort zone, get them involved in the community. A guy that you can rally your whole team around and be like, this is an awesome guy that we are going to go to war for on the field. 
But at the same time, tactically, he's ahead of almost anyone. He uses players in very distinct ways that no one else would think to use them in. And he's developed a reputation for getting the best out of his players and especially creating young stars. You know, think Basuma, Lamptey, Kukurel in one year is going to go from a 20 mil signing to a 50 mil sale. Like, he is just the man. He's the man. (laughs) No other way to describe it. One other point to launch us on a tangent is... For the listeners, how would you describe Graham Potter? Because he is this mythical man, but his image is kind of the exact opposite of that. When I look at Graham Potter, I think of a guy who's on some really cheesy MTV show because his 14-year-old child is addicted to video games and like him and his wife can't do anything to get the kid to leave the computer. You know, like they are just his simps. That's who Graham Potter is. He doesn't look like he's in as much control as he is of his life. Yeah, to me, he kind of looks like a like a college history professor, if that makes sense. He's got that vibe to him. He doesn't look like a, a vibrant football coach. You know, he doesn't strike you as that immediately, but man, is he good. <laughs> yes, he is very good. All right, so I think we've done about as can be expected for us introducing the owner, Tony Bloom, and the manager who has brought Brighton to the place that it's at today. Let's quickly touch on the city that we find ourselves in in Brighton, as that adds to the ambiance of the club and the project that it is. What do you think of when you think of Brighton? Yeah, so Brighton is south coast of England. I think it's like an hour or two from London. Don't quote me on that. I'm just guessing here. But to me, it feels like the equivalent of like a a Jersey Shore for England, right? They have like a boardwalk and a pier and there's a Ferris wheel by the beach. Some very shitty... Shitty might be aggressive. So very <laughs> mediocre-looking beaches. And to me, that just screams New Jersey. Yeah, in a New Jersey way of where, like, there are seven needles in terms of parts per million yes. in the yeah. sand, yeah. right? Like, yeah, you can take the family to the beach, technically. It is an ocean. But beware. But keep the flip-flops on. Yeah, put those Crocs in sport mode. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, also, it's... 50 miles south of London, which is pretty much exactly what the Jersey Shore is to New York City. Just so many. So spot on comparison. I think it's spot on. Uh, But only a population of 300,000, so not a huge city. But I feel like the Amex Stadium is always bumping. Mm -hmm. It always looks like a great time. Home end is always crazy. Everyone's standing. Flashing those black cards. Flashing them. (laughs) It's also the coolest Jersey sponsor, in my opinion, because I'm, you know... I'm a finance credit card nerd. I got about 10 credit cards. Like, you Amex got a lot is of the points. coolest. Yeah. I'm a point guy. I'm a point guy. So grain of salt with that opinion. But, you know, Amex, pretty cool sponsor on a jersey. You could certainly do worse as far as Premier League sponsors go, right? Like, yeah. Crypto yeah. God, BedX.com. <laughs> when you're combining crypto and betting and have very salacious branding that isn't the best for all viewers, Amex compares very well. You got to imagine all those crypto like exchanges that are uh, advertised all over these jerseys are not making their payments nowadays. <laughs> no. <laughs> the accounts receivable you're expecting is just coming in a couple months late and you're like, hey, are we going to get this money? <laughs> <laughs> Can we even consider this money anymore? You know, with Amex, at least you got consistent payments. You know, they got payments down. Exactly. But yeah, Brighton to me, it's like a middle class coast city with... Some charm, you know? It's got a little bit of that, that South, South England charm to it. And I think the city's most famous, most important resident 
Kieran Maguire would probably have some words for us, but I think Brighton probably is a nice, dainty city as much as England can offer places with those characteristics. But anyways, hello, Kieran. Uh, We love you and look forward to having you in future episodes. He's the price of football, the man who knows all things accounting, esoteric and otherwise. And just overall, we probably need Kieran Maguire at the football regulation table somewhere because he's a pretty good rational guy. And if he had it his way, there wouldn't be as many crypto exchange sponsors in the Premier League. Yeah. So love you, Kieran. Yeah, he's a smart guy. Loves to call out just horrible (laughs) financial mismanagement, which is probably my favorite part of his Twitter. If there's one thing that we really bond with Kieran over, it's our hatred slash distrust of all things Barcelona accounting because the things don't add up. But I think that wraps it up for Brighton, the city in this project. So let's get to the part that we care most about. And that's the Moneyball strategy that the club employs. I'll tee it up to you. Can you give us a quick synopsis of how their transfer policy works? Yeah, so if, if we take into consideration what we talked about earlier with Tony Bloom and his background, you can imagine that they have a huge team of data analysts that identify players that are undervalued for whatever reason. Maybe it's strikers that don't have the highest XG but outperform in a different area, and that's undervalued in the market. Whatever it may be, they love to buy low, sell high. They love to buy young. They like Polish players a lot. They buy players, they loan them out, they work them in the first team, whatever they can do to maximize the potential of that player, and then they sell at the right time. When they get a good offer for a key player, Ben White, Basuma, they take it, and they already have worked into the squad replacements ready-made to come into the first team next year. Yeah, I think the big piece in there is identifying the undervalued, and there's a few ways. Once you can buy cheap, they look to either maximize their value In the Brighton first team, because you need a lot of good players to consistently stay in the Premier League and bring in those big revenues consistently to fund your projects. You always need that, but then also players that can suit your team's needs, but also just go on and be sold for 3 4x of what they've been brought in for. Brighton is often in the same vein as Brentford, and I remember one quote I read in The Athletic from a football director or otherwise high up person at Brentford was, big data and scouting doesn't tell you who to buy, but it tells you where to look. And so these scouting departments are looking in more obscure places at people who are just outperforming. And so that can inform just a better, where are the other leagues or places that other Premier League teams just simply won't go look and do as much diligence in? Yeah. And then they'll they'll specialize in that and they'll figure out players that are undervalued they're not going to try and go out and buy like a a Manchester United or a Chelsea might do they're like oh we got to go buy the best left back we possibly can this summer because we need that they don't do that they say if we do need a left back what's undervalued like rather than just like the perfect fit or like the best player available for their price range they say like what's the most undervalued player who then could potentially be a sale in the future or just be a crucial squad player yeah and and to go a little further if this really is Brighton and how they're making decisions they would do their best to not be left in a position where it's this summer and we need a left back and we have to go into the market and buy at market prices they're doing their best to identify next summer the summer after that like as players contracts run out or using whatever other relevant information you have to project what positions are we going to need in the future And what can we do to get players that could fill those boots, get them in the house now, ingrained in the philosophy, and get them that experience, right? So 
best case scenario, someone you buy now for around 10 million can slot in and fill the boots of someone who just left for 30 or 40 like Basuma. Exactly. I feel like we talk about this all the time, but it's so simple to be a smart club and make money. You just have to plan for the future, like plan long-term, have succession plans for your positions. And it's shocking how many clubs don't do it, but Brighton are one of the best at doing it. Speaking of, let's jump into some of their recent success in terms of like sales, maybe succession plans they have in place already, replace those guys like Basuma and, you know, see how their money ball works in action in terms of dollars of income versus expenditure. Yeah, let's look at the transactions. I like it. Um, If we start with recent sales, Yves Basuma to Tottenham, and he's kind of been the heartbeat of this Brighton team for the last few years. Keeps everything ticking and honestly had a higher market value in the last year or so at other points. But most importantly, they still sold this guy for a one and a half, two times multiple of what they brought him in for, right? Yep. Around 35, I think could approach 40 million pounds. And it was time for him to go. He's been a Champions League quality midfielder for a while now. So I think it's going to work out for him at Tottenham, but... They had to do it. It's probably one of the few sales we'll look at here that is under the player's market value. Uh-huh. Because you would say Basuma is like a 40, 50 million pound player pretty easily. Yeah. And dissecting this transfer a little more and how it informs their strategy. When they brought him in, he was 21 or 22, had played over 40 games for Lille and Liga, bought him for about 16 or 18, which was not a small sum for them at the time, but one of a few teams that is willing to go into the talent hotbed that is France and invest young because that's where a lot of gems are to be had. And Yeah, we, we talked about them liking to, you know, spend ten mil or less, go for cheaper guys, but if they identify a guy that's undervalued that they think is gonna be crucial for them, they have no problem spending twenty mil to do it. Let's go to some other recent sales. Let's try to keep it the last couple of years. Ben White, 50 mil Arsenal. A lot of people said that was an overpay for Arsenal. And it's certainly above his market value at the time. I think he's a great center back and he's going to be worth the money. But from Brighton's perspective, they sent him out on loan to Leeds in the championship. He was unbelievable. Helped them get promoted. Helped them get promoted. Leeds tried to sign. They were like, no. And then they get this offer, 50 mil from Arsenal. And they just have to take it. I mean, but they didn't even replace him. And they were fine. They finished ninth. Like they literally had like three or four center backs that were serviceable. The best part about their strategy is they never have to rush to fix holes because they have Graham Potter who will just naturally do it. He'll play anyone out of position. He doesn't care. So you can trust him to just make whatever you have work. And yeah, that's, that's the best part about their money ball strategies. It just doesn't matter. Another recent sale, Dan Byrne to Newcastle around 15 mil there. Probably around his market value. Maybe a, a bit of an overpay from Newcastle, the, the Saudi-backed club. He was just kind of a Premier League journeyman that Graham Potter has got right on track in terms of form. And yeah, for that amount of money and what they know that they could do with $13 million in the transfer market, it's a no-brainer to them. Because I'm sure his contract was probably running down. So versus losing him on a free, realizing... 13 million and thinking, hmm, there is a six foot three Brazilian left footed center back that we can't wait to go purchase and get into the ecosystem of our team. So good business all around. What else do we have? 
Yeah, two big ones to end it. Mark Cucurella goes to Chelsea for 60 mil plus with add-ons. Huge fee for a player they bought for, what, around 20, 25 mil last year. I mean, that's pretty good profit straight to the bottom line. Definitely a slight overpay on Chelsea's part. And the other big one was Neil Mope to Everton for 15 mil. Sad to see him go because he never really worked out, but I do believe there's a good player in there somewhere. Don't think it's going to work out at Everton for him. <laughs> Let's just say that. I thought it was funny given how this summer, a lot more volume in the transfer market, but I think the most commendable display from a football director strategy perspective is Brighton getting a bidding war, or I should say Brighton getting competitors into a bidding war for Neil Mopé. This dude had 12 months left on his contract, has always left a little bit more to be desired, and has a lot more red card risk than you would normally associate with a striker. <laughs> but once again, I think Brighton deserves a round of applause for, you know, Nottingham Forest was the first one I saw linked, and then he apparently had an agreement with Fulham just for one of those famous Frank Lampard calls. HAP. <laughs> what do you say you team up with? Anthony Gordon for two weeks before he heads out to Chelsea. I, I think you guys could really click and save us from relegation. Yeah, definitely good money to get for a player with only 12 months left on his contract. And the best part about the Cucurella deal for 60 mil is the fact that they have Levi Colwell coming the other way on loan, which, as we stated before, center back, a crucial need at this point. And I think he's one of the best Chelsea defender prospects to come out, along with like the Tamoris and Gahis of the past. He's going to be a stud for them. I think we need a little more investigative journalism here because Kukurea, obviously to all viewers, that fee seemed really high. I think the most expensive left back ever, though you could say he plays center back as well. Either way, the price tag was supposedly set at 50 for Man City and somehow they get another 12. Confusing. Yeah. <laughs> I think what might have happened here is that Tony Bloom and the crazy bastard that he is, the devil is in the details for him. And he wanted the number that got reported to be so insane, so as to be able to peg future transfers according to it. So maybe they did, in fact, have a cash flow of, you know, 62 million coming from Chelsea. But maybe there's an undisclosed loan fee of 10 million for Levi Colwell, you sure. know, where it sets the net right around 50. But as far as a PR angle to this, Brighton knocks it out of the ballpark. And Cucurella and Ben White sales alone are more than what it costs to build the Amex. My theory is a little different, actually. A little more nuanced than yours. <laughs> Tony Bloom being the gambler that he is, I bet he could talk Todd Bowley, an American, you know, we're all selfish uh, gamblers. So I bet he convinced him, hey, let's roll the dice to see if we like add or subtract 10 mil to this. Like, you know, I'll give you the 40 mil price tag I didn't give to Man City if you win. And if I win, we get 60. And he definitely carries around a weighted dice everywhere he goes. You know it. He's the <laughs> lizard. Come on now. <laughs> so Cucurella, out the door, big price tag. They replaced him with Pervis Estupinian. We see some synergies here with the not only South American connection, but Ecuador specifically. Moises Caicedo's hit the ground running this year. Jeremy Sarmiento, another heralded prospect within the club. I know we have a huge Spanish league, La Liga as it's known. We've got a bias towards them. Maybe we can categorically make an exception for left backs. Not across the board wholesale, but subject to a tribunal, we'll approve of certain La Liga left backs. 
because they've been producing quality. Cucurello was sweet. Yeah. Even though Reggion's out the door now, I always liked him for Spurs. I think these guys, on the whole, might be cut out for like what the modern Premier League demands at that position. Yeah, we're typically down on transfers from La Liga to the Premier League because of the difference in the two styles of play. But Estupinon seems to fit the bill for a perfect replacement for Cucurella because he puts up monster defensive numbers. He has five-plus tackles and interceptions a game, five-and-a-half, which is pretty crazy for a left-back. I think he's going to be a great addition and fit seamlessly into Potter's side. Do we want to mention uh, USG? Because that's kind of a key part of this multi-club ownership and uh, especially their loan system is really based in in this Royal St. Gio's club. Yeah, I think that segues pretty well into some other lower dollar amount transfers that we've seen them do, but ones that we really like with an emphasis on identifying players that are ones for the future. And so with Royal Union St. Gio's, Tony Bloom became a majority shareholder in them in 2018. They were a second division club in Belgium uh, a club with some history, you know, that's always smart to do when you're getting clubs in the second or third tier. Might as well get someone with history. Realize it might sound like a little tangent here, but it's really important and a cool sidebar with the Brighton and Tony Bloom story because they got promoted in 2021 and first year in the first tier, they went on an absolute Cinderella run, finishing first in the initial part of the season because Belgium does their championship and Champions League qualification a little differently. This team that was pegged to be an obvious candidate for relegation went on to finish second in the league. And so just thinking about this team independently of Brighton, it's been cool to see in four years, Tony Bloom has them as a top team in Belgium. And in and of itself, that's a great thing to have as an owner because if they can every other year qualify for Champions League, make it to the group stage. That's a nice little sum of money. But it's been really cool how he's used, albeit a small multi-club portfolio in just two teams, Brighton and Union, but he's used it effectively because if we use some transfers as an example, Cairo Matoma, this guy was from Japan. I think he's 24 now, but graduated college, I I guess a lot of players in Japan do this, one year or two in the Japanese league, absolutely tore it up. Brighton buys him, but then they get him that European football education by loaning him to the partner club, Union St. Geos. And so a couple of other players have followed in this similar path. Kasper Kozlowski was another one. They signed him in January, 18-year-old that had already made five caps for the Polish national team, Clearly one for the future. And so instead of bringing him to the main ship in Brighton, because he's probably still a little too raw, despite all the talent, they sent him to Union, where although they're a top Belgian team, a player of this quality can probably add something to their level. And for him, this is great experience playing day in, day out in a better league in Belgium, but also getting crucial European exposure. Yeah, absolutely. Belgians like... The perfect level, I think, to loan these guys out to. I mean, they just keep doing it, right? Undav, they bought from USG. He was the top scorer in the Belgian Pro League. Really impressive player. Stayed there on loan technically for six months and is now in Brighton squad. Will probably be one of their strikers for next year. But they signed Julio and Ciso, one of the few South American signings we've seen in the Premier League this summer from Libertad in Paraguay. 10 mil instantly loaned to USG. 
Simon and Dingra signed from Norchland for 8 million euros. He's a right to dream academy boy instantly on loan to USG. It's such a smart way to do things. You buy these guys for the future. You let them marinate a little bit in Belgium for a year or two. In a club that you have equity in, right? (laughs) Yeah. Which you're just giving them stud players too. Because like Belgium's a solid league, but it's not... Put it this way. They're not making $10 million signings in there all the time. No, they couldn't afford these players no. in their own right. Absolutely right? Kozlowski, Adingra, Matoma, <laughs> they could not just go out and have like a 25 million euro transfer summer, right? It's, no. It's not in the cards. So in this way, from a two-club perspective, you can kind of skirt or do some, not shenanigans, but smart allocation of resources on Tony Bloom's part. Yeah, because USG are going to spend almost nothing and still be pretty solid next year. They're just going to get a bunch of guys on loan. And then Club Bruges is probably going to spend 25 mil because that's what the money they have to work with. They got some serious financial backing and they're going to be around the same spot. <laughs> you know, So that's why the multi-club stuff is just the way of the future. I mean, it just makes too much sense from Tony Bloom's perspective. Speaking of things that make sense, I think it's time for us to put a bow on this one, call it a wrap. We've accomplished our objective of just getting our love of Brighton off of our chest, off of a random Google worksheet, and into the universe. So thanks everyone for listening, tuning in. Let us know what you think, what we missed, because I'm sure there was a lot. And hopefully the people of Brighton don't take this one too personally as two Americans that have never been to their coastal town. Thanks everyone. Take care.